Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. These are interesting times, it goes without saying, and certainly in the movie business, essentially, all bets are off. Some cinemas continue to do so-so business on the back of, it has to be said, often so-so movies. But the chances of game-changing blockbusters rampaging through the multiplexes anytime soon are increasingly slim. Even the annual International Film Festival is mostly taking place in our own homes. Remember the voice in your head? The one that said, Sneak away. Here is the place it came from. That's Wendy, one of the festival highlights, and like many of them, driven by a female lead. Interestingly, many of the films this year in general release also feature more women stars, women writers and directors than usual. Mum would have wanted us to open this bakery, so that is what we're going to do. You can definitely see its potential. What? It's a crack den. What's that smell? Cat's piss. Croissants, fresh from the oven. Is this a belated sense of fairness in the industry or simply good business? Possibly a bit of both, and it's by no means the first time it's happened. Back in the golden age of Hollywood, so-called women's pictures were not only common, but were often hugely successful. Good night. What else can I Gone with the Wind it is, still one of the biggest films ever made, thanks in no small part to Olivia de Havilland, who died this week aged 104. Olivia may have made her name playing good girls, but she was deceptively tough. She tamed some of the hardest nuts in Hollywood. Scarlett O'Hara there, but also womanizer Errol Flynn and the even more notorious legal department of Warner Brothers. My head hurts. There's something the matter with my head. Come on, darling, let me help you. Who are you? Why do you torture me? Why do you lie to me? Virginia, what is it? What's the matter? Don't you know me? I'm Robert, your husband. Let me help! When Warners tried to illegally extend Olivia's contract after it expired, as was their habit, she took them to court and won. There's still a law on the books called the de Havilland Law. Against all odds, she continued to work. Jack Warner apparently respected her guts in taking him on and later picked up two Oscars. But Olivia's most fondly remembered getting under the skin of Errol Flynn in films like Captain Blood. I've seen your parrot ways. I've seen myself bargain for and fought over a combat between jackals. 
You pirates are used to taking what you want without the formality of purchase. I'm thief and pirate, and I'll show you how a thief and a pirate can deal. I advise you to go back to your ladies at Tortuga, who are thrilled by your bow lawless ways. Later this show, another one-off. Stanley Kubrick, director of 2001 A Space Odyssey, Dr Strangelove, A Clockwork Orange and Full Metal Jacket is the subject of a new documentary. But first, two women's pictures that aren't much competition for their rivals from the 1930s and 40s. You'll shoot me? You've kept one woman, one American, una americana. If you shoot me, what do you think will happen to you and your people? I don't think I need to do what you say. Bel Canto is a dollop of cheese featuring Julianne Moore as a star opera singer. She's been booked by El Presidente of a fictitious Latin American country to woo an opera-loving Japanese businessman into building a new factory there. Mr. Sokawa, may I present Miss Roxancos? It is a great pleasure. The pleasure's all mine. No sooner has Roxanne started singing for her supper when the lights go out, guns go off, and her audience is held to ransom by a bunch of terrorists. Fortunately, a Red Cross negotiator is on hand to volunteer his services. I'm with the International Committee of the Red Cross. Our demands. All political prisoners must be freed. It is up to the government. If there is blood, it will be on their hands. Free all political prisoners, demands the leader, and we can see we're in for a long wait. Certainly long enough to meet a representative number of hostages, the amusing Russian, the French pianist and his wife, and of course the Japanese businessman and his translator. We also get to meet some hostage takers. How did I do? We will not last long here, so let her go. We need here now more than before. Before you can say Stockholm Syndrome, the two groups find themselves getting cosy with each other, but we keep waiting for Roxanne to justify getting Julianne Moore to play her. Can her singing ability soften the hearts of the government forces outside? I want you to sing. What good would that do? When they hear the beauty of your voice, perhaps they will find a solution. Yes, that really is the plot of Bel Canto, and while it's bolstered by plenty of romantic subplots, it remains the major stumbling block for the movie. Julianne Moore does the best she can, but I don't think even Olivia de Havilland could have done much, confronted by the line, sing loudly to these animals. I want you to sing loudly enough that these animals outside can hear it. Meanwhile, over the way, Shirley takes the slightly higher road with a fictitious story about real-life author Shirley Jackson, starring Elizabeth Moss. To our suffering, my dear. There's not enough scotch in the world for that. <laughs> Shirley, what are you writing now? A little novella. I'm calling none of your goddamn business. <laughs> Interestingly, Shirley is reminiscent of the films of another Golden Age queen, Bette Davis. In fact, imagine Betty playing the acid-tongued wit Dorothy Parker, and you have an idea of what Elizabeth Moss is doing here. Well, you were invited to stay here for a few days until we could find a place. 
surely has these bouts. She's gone sick in the head. In the late 50s, newlyweds Rose and Fred are encouraged to stay, all expenses paid, by Shirley's husband, womanising college professor Stanley. Fred will assist Stanley at work, while Rose will look after blocked writer Shirley, who's having one of her little turns. I read your story. What are you doing here? It made me feel thrillingly horrible. Do you know what it's like to have a secret? Rose and Shirley get off to a rocky start, despite Rose being a huge Shirley fan. But as the film continues, Shirley is inspired to start writing a major novel. The question is, is she using Rose as a model or a victim? What are you up to? That girl, what do you think? Trite and a bit trashy, but uh, give it a go. Meanwhile, psychodramas abound, with Stanley and Shirley channeling another self-destructive couple, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? The one difference being that Elizabeth Moss is rather more Virginia Woolf than Elizabeth Taylor. I like you, Rosie. Can I trust you? I feel like we're in the Scottish play. On the verge of madness. What will happen? The real-life Shirley Jackson, I'm told, specialised in literary horror stories, and Shirley might possibly be most appealing to audiences favourably disposed to that genre. As it is, Shirley revels in hints of madness, academic game-playing, and a puzzling plot that may or may not end in murder. Consider secret looks. Freud would have had a field day. I'm counting down from three. Three, two, one. I have to confess that my enthusiasm for Elizabeth Moss films is rather more muted than some. And while I have nothing but admiration for her talent and commitment, neither are quite sufficient to win me over to Shirley. What becomes of your dear heroine? What happens to all lost girls? Stanley Kubrick achieved legendary status for a number of reasons. He conquered a wide range of genres, sci-fi, costume drama, nuclear satire, Roman epic, and at least four of his films are some of the best films ever made. But most important, he didn't talk to the press. He gained a reputation as an eccentric recluse, but really he just didn't do interviews, apart from once. And that interview is the basis of a new documentary showing at the International Film Festival. Well, I mean, in a work of fiction, you have to have conflict. If there isn't a problem in a story, it can almost by definition not be a story. A good story that you make in a film is a miracle. And, you know, it's very hard to work miracles. It's called Kubrick by Kubrick, and I'm joined by its director, Gregory Moreau, on the line from Paris. Bonjour, Gregory. Bonjour, how are you? Fine, thank you. And despite this really Scottish name, Gregory Monroe, you're actually French born and bred, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, I'm French. I was born in Paris. But you've always had an obsession for American movies. I see you've already made films about Jimmy Stewart and Robert Mitchum, about Jerry Lewis, as well as Stanley Kubrick. 
Absolutely. Yes. No, it's not an obsession. It's a passion, actually, because uh, I grew up, you know, watching uh, not only American and English films, but mainly, you know, when you're a little boy, you have to access easy things. So, of course, I grew up with uh, Westerns or uh, Spielberg's films, too. It's it's really a passion. It's not an obsession. But looking at Kubrick, why didn't he talk to journalists? I mean, you would have thought that if you're a filmmaker, you'd want to get out there and sell your movies. No, well, it's not that he didn't want to talk to journalists. Actually, he talked to journalists, but he chose which one he wanted to talk with. He had a few. Michel Simon was really the most important. Well, he wasn't a journalist. He was a film critic, Michel Simon. And they really had a long-term friendship because uh, Simon interviewed him four times on four films, starting from Clockwork Orange. But Kubrick, I think that he didn't want to explain himself. I think he said that uh, everything was in his movies and he did didn't want it to analyze himself. You've, you found this interview, which was an, a cassette, I believe. You know, it's an audio cassette. Yeah, uh, there were multiple audio cassettes, uh, oh, actually. Well. Uh, actually, it's in Lyon, and the cassettes has been restored. So we had a, a better quality, although we really worked on the audio a lot. When I saw the audio tape, I said, oh, is that it? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a Nagra or something like that. But, you know, we were in the early 70s. I think the first one was in 73 for Clockwork Orange. And they already had the, these audio tapes. Which, uh, which came first, the idea of doing a documentary about Kubrick or finding these tapes? The idea of making a documentary on Kubrick, of course. It's in my mind since, woo. A few years now. You know, since there's been a lot of documentaries on Kubrick and and very good ones too, so I had to find something, you know, something new, something original. And I knew that these audio tapes existed. Actually, we've been in contact with Michel Simon. We asked him if he could grant us permission to use these audio tapes. And then from there on, well, I said, okay, this is going to be the movie. This is the only movie in which you will hear a Kubrick documentary. I mean, to hear and to be close to Kubrick. I've never heard his voice, I don't think. The first time I heard his voice, I had a doubt. I said, is that him? Because he sounds so humble, so Mm. gentle, so, so sympathetic. And he was like that. So I think doing that documentary with his viewpoint, his thoughts, is also a way to humanize Kubrick. His first major film, of course, was Paths of Glory. That's a big film for somebody who's not made a big film before. He met with Kirk Douglas, and Kirk Douglas really liked him. They had a good relationship at the beginning. (laughs) Right. (laughs) On Path and Glory, I mean. Yeah, it was a big experience. They had a a kind of problem with the sets and everything, with the trenches. It was said that they were too large, and people critiqued uh, the, the film. And actually, it didn't came out in France that year. It came out later on. Because oh, really? uh, we didn't yeah. want it. Yeah, yeah. It was censured there. But that film was, to me, is a very powerful film because you think until the end that the uh, soldiers are going to be saved. The happy ending. <laughs> yeah. Kirk Douglas is going to make it happen. And no. So, you know, that's Kubrick. <laughs> well, he did the same thing in a way with Spartacus. I mean, Spartacus came immediately afterwards and it was famous for being the movie that proved that he could come in under budget, I believe. But it, it did come at a cost. Yeah, but, you know, it's not the cost. I think that he was a very, very young director at the time. Mm. 
that's because of Kirk Douglas too, because you know Kirk Douglas is really responsible for I think for Kubrick's celebrity and career. That that's the second time they collaborated, but that time Douglas uh, produced also he right. co-produced Spartacus, and of course you're in Hollywood. The producer is the master, and you have to listen to him and do as he said. Kubrick wasn't like that at all. Even Young, he really knew what he wanted. And so they had a very tough relationship on the set and it was very stressful for Kubrick and for everybody there. You cannot sense it in the movie, but it was really painful for Kubrick, for Kirk Douglas, for Laurence Olivier, for all, all these actors. But it was a great experience because I think Kubrick learned on that big, big film that it's not for him. He didn't feel comfortable in big films like that. He now had the celebrity because Spartacus really had a great success at the time. It helped Kubrick in making other movies. But he said, OK, I'm going to do other movies, but I'm going to do it my way. He moved to Britain shortly after that, didn't he? And he never really yeah. left. No, he never left. He went there and when he was uh, shooting Lolita. There was very little about Lolita in the documentary. I couldn't help noticing, Gregory. I mean, I know. about it. <laughs> I have, have that a lot on this film. I know because we talk about almost all the others, but that's for a few reasons. The very first reason, he doesn't talk about it. Well, I think he mentioned it uh, somewhere in the, in the interview, but it's just mentioning it. My documentary is not about mentioning his films right. or filmography. You know, it's much more deeper, I hope. Hope. It's really digging into his thoughts and to his thoughts process. So Lolita, I think, didn't really match anyway with the, the rest of the film. After Lolita, the unmentionable Lolita, but after that came, frankly, his three big masterpieces, Dr. Strangelove, 2001, and A Clockwork Orange. They were extraordinary films and very, very different films. He just fell in love, and he, he says it in the, the documentary, mm. you know, it's all about reading because he adapted a lot of books, actually. All of his films, 90% of his films are adaptation. He read every day, all the time, sometime for months, uh, almost years, and sometime he liked a book and he wanted to adapt it. So I think it's all about also his mood and how does the story appeals to him. Strange Love was done around the uh, atomic bomb, so it was done, you know, in these years when you have the Cold War and everything. So that was a period, uh, period correct. And the 2001, I think he knew about the NASA. He did 2001 a year before a man walked on the moon. It's all, almost as if he was anticipating things. So I think the Clockwork Orange is even more powerful because it, it still strikes to me today. When you hear Kubrick talking about violence, there's a sequence. When you hear him talking about the problem of how do you solve violence, are you going to use violence against violence, you know, the authority as a violent authority to eradicate violence. Look at the world today. It's exactly what happens. Even worse. That's really impressive. When, when I heard him saying that, I said, oh my God, I mean, you know, nothing had changed. And poor Stanley, today, I don't know what he would have to think about the world. <laughs> and if Stanley trusts you, if he trusts you, you're all right. If he doesn't, beware. We did 105 takes on this thing, and take two was perfect. All these films were very uh, technically challenging, but he also developed this reputation as this obsessive, the person who would just do take after take after take. Why do you think he, he did that? 
Well, you're mentioning his uh, issues with actors. <laughs> actors <laughs> had issues with him, but not all, all the actors. He had two different kind of actors, I think. Mm. He had the kind of actors who were like him. Jack Nicholson or Peter Sellers, you know, they were like Kubrick. They were able to go anywhere, and you know, as much as he wanted, and they were totally involved in that. Mm. And then he had other actors that didn't have that experience, uh, maybe like younger actors. Uh, I'm talking about Ryan O'Neill. At the time, he did sure. Love Story, but he was at his very early beginning. And, and Kubrick just asked him almost not to do anything in front of the camera. He, he said, no, no, don't do any kind of face. And he would do like uh, 30 or 40, uh, 50 takes like that. <laughs> so, of course, the actor gets mad. But, you know, I think that it wasn't Kubrick. And I think Tom Cruise said it because Tom Cruise also suffered a lot. And he explained that Kubrick wanted really to have the best performance, the most real as possible. It wasn't just to uh, be a, p a pain in the ass for actors. It was just that he really needed the actors to be as sincere as possible for the sequence. And he wanted them not to act. He wanted them to be. See what I mean? You know, that's a special technique, but you must also remember that Kubrick didn't go to film school. He started with photographs. He started with documentaries. So he never worked with actors. I think actors were weird to him. Sometimes he had issues to adapt and to know what an actor was. But I think that time going on, you know, with Malcolm McDowell, it was fantastic. I thought, and, uh, I thought that Orange. was a fantastic interview that you, you got with Malcolm McDowell too. I thought that he was very interesting on the subject of Kubrick and how unprepared he'd be on the set. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. You know, no, he knew before. I mean, it shows you how Kubrick wanted to be in the moment. He wanted mm. to improvise. And, you know, a lot of people said, oh, Kubrick, he does a two-year shooting. You know, it takes two years. His movies are so expensive and everything. But they weren't, actually. He took two years to shoot a movie. But his movie was as expensive as the one that was shot in eight months or six months. Why? Because he had two to three times less crew right. than on the usual set. And there he was able, and he was free to think and to improvise and to find ideas. So that was his uh, process. And I think it was it's very clever from him. But there there's been too many um, critics around his... It's a mythology, Kubrick being a, a crazy man, a yeah. recluse, a, a tyrant, and that he spent a lot of money. It's really not true. I've never done more than, say, 15 takes before in my life. Directing a movie, if you try to do it properly, is not always fun. I mean, oh. at the end of having made this documentary and having heard all these interviews and heard him talking, did you come to any conclusion about Kubrick the man and what made him such a, a unique director? I think what's unique is that, to me, he was very uh, ahead of time, you know. He wasn't a visionary, but I think that he was very well aware of the world in which he was living, and I think he really, really knew what he wanted to tell. And I think that why Kubrick is Kubrick is because he did only 13 films, but none of them are the same. I mean, in terms of genres. But when you really think about it and you watch them again, then you see that actually there are a lot of uh, common points into his films. So I think that's the mastery of Kubrick. You know, it's his viewpoint on humanity. These 13 films 
are like a testimony to me. I think people know that. Even if they cannot explain it, I, I'm talking about the audience with some critics. I think they, they sense that that was it. It's powerful. Emotionally, it's powerful. Gregory Monro, the director of the fascinating documentary Kubrick by Kubrick, which is currently available to watch at the New Zealand International Film Festival. And that brings this show to a close. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.